You are all very welcome to another episode of Circumcessions. My name is Farad O'Kelly, and today we are joined by Professor Emily K. Johnson, who is an Associate Professor of Urology at Northwestern Feinberg School of Medicine and an attending pediatric urologist at Lurie Children's Hospital of Chicago, as well as a subspecialty editor in population health services for the JP Ural. She's active on Twitter on at E-E-K-A-Y-J-A-Y, which is very cleverly at E-K-J. She's a pediatric urologist with an academic focus in health services and outcomes research. And I've been meaning to try and get her on the show for some time now, uh, as I think she is a really interesting person to speak to and an innovative thinker and a great researcher. Okay, Emily, thank you so much for coming on the show today. This is fantastic to have you here at last. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Great. So I guess what I wanted to really touch on, um, just to start off with that, and again, congratulations on your appointment as a Youth Smart mentee for 2022. It's It sounds very exciting, but I, I guess for those who don't know what, what it is, can you explain what this is and I suppose what it means for you and indeed your patients? Sure. Um, so thank you very much for that question. The um, USMART stands for Urology Scientific Mentoring and Research Training Academy. And um, this is a program that's been in place at the American Neurological Association for the last several years. And the idea is really to support and promote um, urologic researchers who are kind of on the cusp of become, becoming independent investigators. So um, we were fortunate enough to ha- have the opportunity to have 10 of us be selected for this program this year. And um, these are national colleagues, both MDs and PhDs from around the United States who have had some success in research and have also expressed an interest in having another take on their mentorship. So each of us has been assigned an external mentor from another institution in the US, which is very cool and a unique opportunity that I'm really excited about. Brilliant. And congrats again. So, I mean, and just looking back over your, I mean, some of your education and training today, I mean, it looks very impressive. I mean, Emory University, University of Michigan, Boston Children's, Harvard Medical School. I mean, this is, this is fantastic. But, you know, I, I suppose, what was your motivation, I suppose, in going into pediatric urology as a subspecialty? Who really kind of guided you along the way? And, and I suppose, who were your mentors? Um... So I, I love reflecting on kind of the journey because mine was um, definitely not, you know, going to medical school knowing that I wanted to be a pediatric urologist. I think there are a few folks where that's the case, but that's really not the case for most people, right? So um, I discovered urology relatively late in medical school. I was a medical uh, student at the University of Michigan. And I did literally one day of pediatric urology when I was a medical student. <laughs> so for... <laughs> It's funny to think back. I had one day in the operating room with Dr. John Park, who is a fantastic mentor at the University of Michigan, and that I had one day in medical school that actually was the training for what I would do for my entire career. Um, But I will say there's lots of components of pediatric urology that I did really enjoy during my early medical school and then residency. So I love general surgery. I love gynecology. I love general pediatrics. And so when you think about the patients and the skills that um, I encountered in those fields, pediatric urology was really a nice fit to kind of blend uh, some of the things that I enjoyed earlier in my training. Um, So I, you know, definitely early on, Dr. John Park, 
Dr. Julian Wan, Dr. David Bloom from the University of Michigan were really critical pediatric urology mentors for me during my residency. And then, you know, the entire team at Boston Children's Hospital, including my co-fellows and senior fellows, as well as, of course, Dr. Alan Reddick, who was the founder of the fellowship and a really, you know, a critical mentor for me and thinking about what I wanted to do with the rest of my career. Amazing. And I had the opportunity to chat and interview uh, Professor Reddick at one stage, and, and we're hoping to put that out as a, a bonus episode at some stage. Oh, but fun. Yeah. I it, it was, have to, definitely have to check it out. It, it was good. We did it in a Starbucks, which was uh, which was interesting, but it's uh, yeah. it was it was great. Just just hearing these stories was fabulous. Yeah, yeah. I'll also just add that um, when it comes to blending my research career with my career as a pediatric urologist, um, I would be remiss if I didn't mention Dr. Caleb Nelson, who was my research mentor during fellowship and really showed me how to take formalized health services training and combine that with a career as a pediatric urologist. So I appreciate learning that from him. Incredible. And actually, sp- speaking of, of uh, Dr. Nelson and, and actually some of your research, I, I was having a quick look on, on PubMed. And if you put in things like qualitative research and pediatric and urology, I know it's a fairly, you know, quick and dirty way to do it. But you come up with about 75 articles. And as per usual, you know, at least half of them are probably not particularly related but your name kept popping up again and again and again. And I, I worked out it was something like 20% of all the published pediatric urology qualitative literature. So I guess, you know, it's not an area that I'm very familiar with. Um, but what what's your take on qualitative research? And, and how, how, do you, how does that kind of gel in or how does that apply to pediatric urology? Yeah, um, I'll just say first before you before I answer your question that you providing that those data to me like knocked down the little bit of imposter syndrome that I had and um, <laughs> I when you first invited me to talk about this I was thinking oh I'm not really that much of an expert I don't really I don't really know enough about this but then when you shared those data with me I feel like okay I got this so. Um, I am by no means a, you know, a PhD qualitative researcher. However, um, we've found ways to weave qualitative research into some of the topics that we're really interested in um, here at Larry Children's when it comes to caring for our pediatric urology patients. And so um, I'm happy to share that experience, even if I'm not necessarily a methodological purist or expert. Um, so anyways, I... Um, I have found that I, you know, started out a little bit more quantitative in a lot of my health services research projects. So things like large database studies to describe national trends in X, Y, or Z condition, um, survey research where we ask patients questions on a Likert scale, how much do you like this or not like this, how satisfied or dissatisfied are you, um, retrospective chart reviews where we looked at patient outcomes from various urologic procedures, et cetera. And quantitative research is really good at telling you the what or trends, what's happening, who does well, who doesn't do well. But um, at some point you might want a deeper dive into a certain topic to understand the why. So these quantitative methodologies that I learned in residency and fellowship um, really do a good job in, in telling us a certain part of the story. 
But if you really want to understand why patients don't have a good outcome from a certain approach, or if you want to understand why there are differences in outcomes by various regions or racial and ethnic groups or whatever, um, actually going to talk to the patients, going to talk to the parents or talking to the clinicians can really nicely complement other quantitative studies. So qualitative research is really an approach. It's a strategy where the researcher is doing observations, interviews, focus groups to try to get a great level of detail about a topic that's not possible with quantitative methodology. Um, there's lots of different ways to do qualitative research, but that's really the goal. And it, um, it sometimes feels very like fluffy and nonspecific to us surgeon brain people. But I realized even in the topics where I've done lots of quantitative work, there's sometimes a missing piece that you can gain a lot of information and insight about next steps by actually sitting down and talking to people. Absolutely. And I think, you know, when you look at that, I think it's very easy to underappreciate how much work and how many how many hours goes into this qualitative research. I mean, I remember speaking to one of my old um uh, w one of my old mentors up in uh, Ottawa, Melise Keys, when she was doing some of this stuff on hypospadias, and she would just mm -hmm. spend hours and hours and hours in front of, in front of a computer, just sifting through text data. It was it was incredible stuff. But I know, just going back to some of your own stuff. I, I mean, you authored a couple of papers on, on factors such as things like affecting fertility decision making and fertility preservation in the transgender population. And, you know, naturally you spoke about the need for specialized counseling, the development of decision aids, the importance of good quality communication. And like you said, when you ask about the why, you were able to capture the essence of the underlying pro uh, problem. But just, I suppose, if you look back at some of those papers, how would they have looked if you had used standard quantitative uh, approaches or, quanti or, or, or standard epidemiological approaches? How, how would those papers have different in their appearance what would they have answered in, instead of in, instead of those kind of conclusions that you 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 came to yeah that's um it's an interesting question i think you know for some of these topics we've tried to complement the qualitative work with some with some quantitative studies so maybe i'll give you some examples there um so for example thinking about the transgender like youth and young adults and whether they elect fertility preservation we've done some survey research and we've done some chart reviews to try to understand things like what proportion of kids who um, elect for gender affirming hormones preserve their fertility ahead of time so we can we can answer questions like you know is it one in ten is it one in twenty is it one in a hundred but we and we can ask questions in a survey like how much did having to delay hormones affect your decision to do fertility preservation so a little bit a medium amount or a lot you can get that sort of um, information quantitatively from a survey but if you want to be able to ask somebody that question with more depth and kind of round out the why, you have to talk to them and be able to ask follow-up questions. So I think you can kind of get the surface level with something like a survey 
or reviewing the charts of all of the patients who signed up for gender-affirming hormones to see how many of them preserve their fertility. But you, there's just a lot of limitations as to understanding what could be done to improve that rate if that's the goal, or what could be done to understand if what is happening is appropriate. Amazing. No, hundred percent. And another thing, I suppose, another just just staying on the same kind of theme. Another nice paper you looked at. Uh, or you authored, I should say, looked at nomenclature use amongst physicians with respect to uh, the, the population with uh, with differences in sexual development. And you concluded that the differences in term preference can affect patient care, which I thought was a really, really powerful conclusion to make. And, and potentially how you're viewed by patients and advocates uh, by mm-hmm. the way you address them and the, by, um, by the terms that you use, which, you know, in, in, in many ways seems intuitive, but, you know, as as a profession, we're pretty poor at doing that. Um, and, and one of the things I, I noticed on your Twitter profile was, was the use of the pronoun she and her. And I suppose I've used that on my Twitter and LinkedIn profiles as well. And, and But I, sometimes I kind of wondered, you know, what this really meant to those who look at these profiles. I mean, for me, I suppose, and maybe wrongly, I, I suppose it, what I was kind of hoping to suggest, well, I wasn't afraid to broach the topic and, and that, you know, I acknowledge, I acknowledge the differences exist. But based on your research and your experience to date, I mean, is that a similar thing for you? And, and would you recommend that as a subspecialty, as you mentioned, with, you know, with, I suppose, experience in urology, in gynecology, in general surgery, in pediatrics, and in, in, of course, the adolescent population, should we try and embrace, start embracing things like those pronouns? Yeah, I'm, it's a complicated question, so I'll try to, I'll try to uh, be a little systematic here. I would say, related to the study that you referenced on nomenclature, we've done a couple studies on nomenclature, and I think you know, it's a good example of what I would call a mixed methods approach, meaning we did a survey where we presented terms and asked people how preferred or not preferred they were, and then we also asked, gave them free text, a couple places to give us free text comments. And so in that study, we actually didn't do interviews, but we combined a qualitative component from what people wrote. And I will tell you, they wrote a lot about this, wow. <laughs> about terminology. Wow. And then we combined that with, you know, some quantitative, you know, what's your diagnosis? Um, how much do you prefer intersex versus DSD? Like all these sorts of things. We asked them about clinic names, which is really helpful. Like, do you want this to be called? DSD clinic, or do you want this to be called something more generic, etc. So we got a lot of good information from using a mixed methods approach there, kind of combining a quantitative survey with a formal qualitative analysis of their comments. And um, what I would say from that is that just very globally, there are no preferred, necessarily preferred terms for DSD. There's not one set of terminology that works for everybody. And so you have to ask people what they want you to use. And, you know, the way that translates to pronouns is that same thing. Like, it is fine to ask somebody what pronouns they use. And, you know, my understanding at this point is that, you know, this is not like a preferred pronoun. It's not what I prefer. It's my pronoun. So just say, what are your pronouns? And um, same thing in clinic when referring to folks and their anatomy or their child's diagnosis. If you're not sure what word you want them to be or they want you to use, just ask. And if you make a mistake and use the wrong pronoun or the wrong word, apologize, correct yourself and move on. I think people are very understanding if you're trying. Um, And so 
my hope in having my pronouns is one. Every once in a while, some people get my name wrong and think that I'm Emile and not Emily. And so then that would, you know, clarify my gender identity from that perspective. But then also it's just a sign that, you know, I am open to folks telling me that their pronouns and um, so it's just out there and not a big deal. Absolutely. No, I, I, I think that's really succinct and well put, to be honest. And I agree completely with you. Just moving back, I suppose, just to kind of wrap up. I mean, you've, you've done so many great things so far. And, and, and obviously there are many, please God, many, many papers coming down the line in, in, in terms of your research. But what do you think is the next step or the next phase for qualitative research within pediatric urology? Do you think that this is something that's gaining traction? Or do you think that this is something that's just a bit niche? And I suppose just to just to finish with then, I guess... Is there any area in, within pediatric urology that you would feel the qualitative research would not be applicable to? Um, so I'll answer the first part of your question first, thinking about sort of next, you know, next steps, where we're going in the field. I think, I think the answer is probably both when it comes to is qualitative research for sort of niche topics or are there things that are gonna be more um, globally applicable? I actually think qualitative research is really valuable for rare diseases. Um, that's not just my opinion. I think I think a lot of folks would agree that for things that are uncommon, where you're never going to have a large database to look at the experience of individuals with condition X, that qualitative research will always have a role. Not everybody is going to care about every condition, but if you want to, you know, understand the experience of I don't know, adults with cloacal extrophy, for example, qualitative research would always have a role. Um, I also have been seeing more um, studies where qualitative methodology has been incorporated into almost like a quality improvement framework to improve care processes. There's a lot of this in general surgery, and I'm starting to see more in urology with things like decision aids or streamlining other clinical processes. We've thought about this some here at Lurie, where you know you interview families and have them design a clinical tool with you. Um, it's called user-centered design, sort of an iterative process where they give you qualitative feedback about some clinical tool that you've designed and help you redesign and refine it. Um, I'm interested in using qualitative research to help improve like high volume procedures like circumcision. I'm doing some work on um, streamlining newborn circumcision care. So talking to doctors and nurses and figuring out like why this is a hard thing to do and how we can help the care process be more streamlined. So I think for those types of um, goals where it's really practical um, sort of hybrid between quality improvement and research, I think qualitative methodology will be here to stay and um, much more widely applicable. That's uh, incredible. And uh, Emily, thank you so much for taking the time out of your busy schedule to come and uh, chat with me on on the on the podcast here. And I, I can't wait for other people to learn a bit more about qualitative research and, and, and of course, to keep reading keep reading your own uh, research that, that you're, you you seem to be publishing at a rate of knots. So thank you so much for coming on the show. Well, thank you very much for the invitation. It was a pleasure to talk with you and hopefully we can see each other in person sometime soon. Perfect.